Hi everyone, welcome to Future Focus podcast. In this chapter, we have a very special guest, Jason Hanikat. He is the Chief Compliance Officer of NetSpay. Jason, welcome to podcast and can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks for the invitation to speak and share my experiences and viewpoints on where we're at and where we're going, especially mm-hmm. in the compliance realm. I am the Chief Compliance Officer at NetSpend. NetSpend was originally founded as a prepaid debit card company, really before fintech became a word and a buzzword. So we're an original fintech before it became big. So we have a whole suite of digital products. We work with issuing banks and we develop a wide range of digital products. You turn your cash into a digital form of money, whether it's on a card, in a bank account, on an app, anything like that. NetSpend's developing all of it. And many of the brand names you may see out in the market, NetSpend's actually powering many of those brands in the market. Before NetSpend, I was AML legal counsel and an AML officer at an OCC regulated bank on the Texas-Mexico border. So my experience there was really from the anti-money laundering end, and I'll do my best to avoid the acronyms. So anti-money laundering, right? We all have our own Hollywood images about what that is or isn't. For the most part, they borrow from truth in a lot of the situations there. And I got into doing anti-money laundering for a bank because I was a federal prosecutor on the Texas-Mexico border. So very different than the sensational items on the national news. But yes, a federal prosecutor on the border, everything that you would be concerned about for an anti-money laundering program, I prosecuted it or investigated it in one way or another. So that's just a little about myself and how I got here, the short version anyways. Great. Welcome again. Thank you. So Jason, how does your team leverage data and technology when it comes to compliance? Because we know it's all a moving target these days. So talk to us a little bit about how you manage that. Yeah, it's a great question. And when I first went into doing AML work at a bank, one of the very first things I noticed, even though it was a community bank, the access to the data, the understanding of the data, being able to work with the data was key. It was the number one component to success. So in that instance, a major challenge was just getting access to the data. It was there, but it was very challenging to get to. And there was very few people in the bank who could actually retrieve the data or work with it in any fashion. So early on, I learned that I wanted to be one of those people. I learned how to translate what I was thinking to retrieve the data in a specific format, which was always in the raw format. One, always pull your data in the raw format. And then reformat it and work it in a way that makes sense for compliance. So what I learned to do was become an Excel power user myself. And I found in meetings, if you're talking with a data person or a reporting analyst, you can describe a bicycle and what you get back is not anywhere near a bicycle. And so what I learned was say, hey, give me 10,000 rows of the raw data exactly Mm -hmm. as it is, exactly as it comes out. I will go build a proof of concept in Excel simple formulas, complex formulas, maybe some light VBA scripting, and then prove it out and build out the columns step-by-step. And then when you go back to that data person, your SQL person, your reporting analyst, they can go, yes, I can exactly build that for you in SQL, in Python, whatever language they're working in. But without your compliance officer, without being able to apply your specific vision onto the screen, it would have been a much more challenging situation. So I highly recommend that anybody who's currently a chief compliance officer or aspires to be, that you become data proficient, relational data tables, at a minimum, a strong Excel users, writing your own custom formulas at a minimum. Great. That brings me to a very curious question, Jason. What are some of the old practices in compliance you still think are relevant? And what are some of the new practices you are adopting? And where is this 
compliance best practice leading towards? The old and the new is perhaps one of the best questions to ask and to apply to the compliance realm, especially in areas where compliance is changing, which in most compliance areas, it's going to be ever-changing, especially in something like fraud or anti-money laundering. Those things, you're talking about people that are bad actors that don't want to get caught. So as soon as you Mm -hmm. catch on to them, they are going to change their pattern. Even in other compliance realms, even on standard consumer compliance realms, those regulations or the regulatory expectations change, maybe not day to day, but they change year to year. The bar typically Mm -hmm. rises. So what you were doing last year may not be enough. You may have had five successful exams and this year you get a fail. That's very possible. So my particular approach, and it has worked right in the compliance realm for nine years and running now, and it's based on my experience as a federal prosecutor, that you need to continuously improve and you need to document that improvement. If you have the best compliance program in the world, but you cannot prove it, what good is your program? Virtually every compliance realm, the federal government has a right to come in with a regulator, a civil process by the Department of Justice or a criminal process by the Department of Justice and dig into your program. And guess what? You better be able to prove it. Otherwise you could be facing a civil penalty or even a criminal Mm -hmm. indictment. But a follow-up question to me, how do you keep yourself ahead of the compliance? Because it is similar to a virus attacking our computer. It's so hard to keep ahead of it. How do you typically do that in compliance? So I like to do two things. One, I like to keep myself training and advancing. So Mm -hmm. I have several national and international news sources that I read every day. It's typically the Mm -hmm. first thing that I do in the morning or in between morning meetings. And there are reliable news sources, there are reliable news aggregators, and read that. Number one, I always recommend reading the general business section. Number two, I always recommend reading something on politics, not that you want to be political, but the politicians Mm -hmm. make the laws and influence how regulators enforce and view those laws. So you need to know which way the headwinds are going. And then I also like to have something that you're learning that's not business. I think you need to have a hobby that you learn Mm -hmm. from, that you enjoy, that you do. Maybe you go from hobby to learn different things. Maybe you have one hobby that you become an expert in, and that's really what makes you a well-rounded person. I think it's important to understand things outside of what you do to your day-to-day job. And then on the other piece of it, I believe in having a strong team of people who are smart, critical thinkers that can help you identify problems and solve problems. I don't look for people who are just following marching orders and looking to be told, do they go left or do they go right? You need to have people who are capable of self-learning, just like myself, right? They're constantly reading and absorbing new information, and they're able to apply those learnings in a meaningful way. And especially in the analysts and the managers, I like to have people Mm -hmm. with a variety of backgrounds, lived in different parts of the world, lived in different Mm -hmm. parts of the country, speak different languages. They have different work backgrounds. You could have worked as a welder. You could have worked as a mechanic. You could have been an investment banker. And all of those will bring different and valuable experiences to the compliance realm. So you need teammates to help contribute to your knowledge as a group. Okay. So you're saying diversity is actually a great advantage in all aspects of diversity, not just one aspect of it, but so it's a great it's really, insight. Thank you. It's hard to overstate it. So let's take a very simple example as a banker and as a bank compliance. If all of your compliance people come off of the teller line, where are you gonna get your commercial loan knowledge? Where are you gonna get your redlining knowledge? You may be great Mm -hmm. on 
CTR currency transaction reporting knowledge, you may be great on being able to read what is a teller doing with those transactions when the customer's in the line and what's going on with the check. But where's your person who knows the operations database of the bank, right? So if you only limit your line of sight to one thing, you're missing a huge portion of what's really going on in the world. Yeah, Jason, I was a banker. So you're speaking my language here and definitely recognize the value of having that diversity of knowledge when it comes to how money moves around. But I also think, as you said, having people from diverse cultures helps you understand the approach and the language nuances of how people are trying to work around the system or work within the system. And that was exceptionally helpful to me when I work with people from all different backgrounds to be able to truly understand how the entire client base is working with the system. The culture of money also changes depending on your geography and your language and your cultural beliefs. Some places of the country or world want to use cash more. Some places want to use that debit card more. Some places, right, they don't want to touch cash or they just may move money in different ways. And especially in the anti-money laundering world, right, if you don't know what's going on, you're supposed to file a filing with the federal government. But if you're familiar with that money culture, hey, no, this is common. It's just that they prefer cash and they will loan cash to family members. And so it's not unusual to see that money float around a little bit like that. Culture of money, I think that's a great word, yeah. And let me ask you though, since we're focuses on data and you mentioned being good at Excel and I'm good at reading Excel. I'm not good at developing <laughs> Excel. It's always a joke. I can read a bunch of numbers, but I don't like making those pivot tables and things. How has your data-driven approach contributed to your success in compliance? Where does the data push you as a compliance officer forward in ways that your other experience hasn't? Especially anything in the compliance realm, right? Compliance is the first priority, but your next priority as an employee of your company and being a good corporate citizen is being responsible for those assets of the company, being efficient with all of your resources that you do have. And compliance can commonly be thought of as paper intensive, not efficient. But if you are efficient and you have an operations person or a consultant come in and review your processes and they say, yes, you are incredibly efficient, you are now in a much better position to ask for more staff, right? You can show that you're doing everything that you need to do in an efficient manner to save company money and be efficient with those resources. So any place where you can apply data and automation in today's world, you should lead with that. As a very specific example, in my current situation, we did virtually the same thing at my prior stop. Mm -hmm. The review process for an anti-money laundering analyst took anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes on average to pull all the information together to be ready to perform the analysis, much less document the analysis and get the work done. So I spent time, probably a full month, sitting at the analyst desk, getting my ideas, going over to the data person, the next desk over and say, here are some things that I see. What can we execute on? What scripts can we write? What can we automate? What can we do? So at the end of it, the new process for the anti-money laundering analyst is less than five minutes before they can begin their analysis. So they have to wow. go in, get a customer piece of information, open a SQL window, run a preset SQL script. They copy and paste the one piece of customer information. It pulls all the information they need in less than 30 seconds. They copy and paste it to an existing Excel template. They hit refresh and they are now ready to do their analysis. Three and a half minutes on average is a better approximation. So we say 15 minutes per alert unit times however many thousands of alert units you're getting per month in our case, right? Close to 3,000 alerts per month. So you are in a nutshell saying that based on the data, what to look for and how to look for is what 
a compliance officer should truly give as a POC, right? A lack of good word to the analyst so that now they can run that on 100,000 data set and get you that. Yes. And that would apply regardless of your field of compliance. We can take sanction screening, OFAC, right? Every business is subject to that. Again, it's based on data. What is the data? You have an OFAC sanction screening list. You have mm -hmm. a list of your customer names. You have a list of your vendor names. You have a list of your suppliers. You have a list of your people handling your import, export, your trade, right? So if your data is set up well, you know how to tune your system. You can review appropriate matters, not review inappropriate matters. And the items you are reviewing, you review them faster because you get straight to the heart of the matter and you're not fumbling around. So an OFAC and sanctions list is a list of countries and individuals that have been sanctioned. So you can't help them move money anywhere around the world. And so you have to keep compliant of that so that you don't accidentally send money for someone that has been sanctioned or a country that's been sanctioned. Is that right, Jason? That, that's completely correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And thank you for supplementing the explanation. I jumped straight into the heart of the matter. Can I ask a follow-up question on that one before? Sure. So you mentioned with the idea of you being able to improve the data, allowing you to hire more staff, what's the value of you being able to hire more staff and compliance at this stage in the way the environment is working? I understand that compliance is growing. So why is that the key thing for you if you can improve efficiencies through data? So it's a complicated question and answer and times always change. So as a matter of continuous improvement, it might be additional headcount, but it may be data gains. It may be efficiency gains. It may be proving your effectiveness gains. And frequently though, if you were in a challenging situation, one of the best things you can do as a compliance officer, as a company, as a chief executive officer, chief financial officer, one of the best things you can do to protect your company on the compliance end is show that we continually invest the number one thing that most people invest in is people. And then I would say closely followed by technology resources. So if you can show that you're continuing to invest in that, that will pay dividends in keeping your company out of trouble. If there is a finding, the finding becomes more minor, less severe. If you can show, look, every single year we make improvements. If you give us a finding, we're going to handle it and we're going to get it knocked out before you show up next year. But if you're just stagnant and if you're stale, the penalties get more severe. The finding is now a high instead of a medium. Mm -hmm. And then if you don't resolve it the next year, maybe the finding we're talking about a civil money penalty or some sort of private regulatory action. And then if you still don't fix it, it becomes a public regulatory action and you end up on the front page of the newspaper, which nobody wants for compliance. That's your best day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's not have that. So Jason, let me ask you one final question. What advice would you give to the existing compliance officers, CXOs out there, to people who aspire to get to where you are? We know the whole world is changing around us, but ultimately it is you who matters rather than technology and the data, right? Yeah, there's so many pieces of advice, but to boil it down to perhaps the most important things is to one, remember your life and your career are a journey. It is not going to be a straight line, right? I started as a state prosecutor did some private civil practice, went to be a federal prosecutor, went to a bank, went to a fintech, right? That is definitely not a straight line. <laughs> 
in going through, in my particular case, going to law school and borrowing money, there are years where you don't know where your path is leading and it's very challenging, right? Just because you're an attorney does not automatically mean life is good. So it's a journey. I advise people to make progress day to day, make progress year to year. If you're doing that, you're going to end up in a good spot at the end of your journey would be the first thing about it. I believe also get comfortable with yourself. You want to evaluate what makes other people successful, what you pick up on making them successful. Try mm -hmm. to take and adapt what you can, but don't try to be them. Comedy is not my thing. I'm not going to be a comedian. My thing is honest, straightforward candor, and I can identify an issue and I can identify solutions and we can work through them. That's where my skill set really lies. And what do you know? That's tremendously beneficial as a compliance officer. The other thing for somebody wanting to be a compliance officer in the future, I believe there are going to be a lot of people that are data native, right? They're going to understand SQL, Python, whatever programming languages in the future. They're going to understand mm -hmm. relational tables or whatever advancement is made on relational tables. And they're going to do that. So I think if you're a traditional compliance officer, you just want to read some regs and be able to recite them. I don't think that's going to serve you well in the future. You need to be able to read the regs, recite them in a simplified fashion, and be able to pull the data and apply them, which is actually where the attorney skills come in, right? It's the law applied to the facts. So you need to pull the data, which is your facts, and you need to apply your laws and your regulations to the facts. So that skill is ever-growing, continuously sharpening. If you're not working on data, if you're not understanding data, I think you're falling behind. So you would say compliance sits between the regulatory and the data and is kind of bridging those two to create a program where a company can not end up on the front page. I think it's a good description. The other pieces that I would bridge in there, I would bridge in the operational components of your business and the finance and accounting components of your business. Operational components, depending on your realm of compliance, are operational components that can get you in really big compliance trouble. There are finance and accounting pieces. The piece that I can think of is insider fraud would be a common one or bribery, whether it's foreign bribery under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or domestic bribery, bribery of a public official, for example. Those things can get you criminally indicted, your company or you as a CFO really quickly if you're not applying appropriate controls in your compliance program. Thank you, Jason. This was a very insightful conversation. Again, thank you for taking time. Thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you, Steve, for participating in this podcast with me. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And stay tuned for our next chapter. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you, everyone, for listening and watching.